Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. What connects a bonefish, a coral necklace, the touch of a king, and a season ticket to Vauxhall Pleasure Gardens? And we've heard of workhouses, of course, but what proportion of children survived working in them? It's Friday, April the 12th, 2013. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe, and this is Londonist Out Loud. London, Michaelmas term lately over. London. Okay, you know where you are. A radical transformation. Very radical transformation. Morally outraged with what's going on. I got very excited this week. Seems reasonable, doesn't it? As soon as you scratch the surface, you realise gore happened all across London. Every open square would have a gallery. Place called the Kittle Hoosey. Saw your Geordie's Grace riding on a goosey. The hell is that? <laughs> a man is tired of London. He's tired of so London. So what was the first thing that caught your eye? The South has an overstuffed walrus. It's, it's a very important history. A handwritten letter from Charles Dickens. There's a piece of information we're missing here somewhere. You sneak through the city, you're immersing yourself in the sights. And for the Jewish community who came over in their tens of thousands from uh, Russia, from Poland. We are doing a modern take on Morris dancing. When did he think the second coming was going to happen? Yes, uh, Boris... He wants to put an airport. <laughs> the, t- the tone with which Boris has announced that is fatigue. Yes, the city is always changing. Uh, people frequently say to me, you know, won't it be wonderful when it's finished? And I say, no, it'll be dreadful. Uh, it'll mean it's dead. Inform and entertain. That's what it's about. London is a modern Babylon. That's very true. Can we have some of the detail here? Hello, hello. I'm here at the Foundling Museum, not a million miles away from Russell Square, and uh, I've just come in past the statue of Thomas Cook, uh, looking looking relaxed, as usual. Um, we're down here in the basement of the building to look at an exhibition. It's called Fate, Hope and Charity, and here with me to discuss it are uh, Jeanette Bright, who's an independent researcher, one of the two, I think, who've helped to put this exhibition together, and the curator of the exhibition, Stephanie Chapman. Um, the attentive listener will recognise Stephanie Chapman who has appeared in a previous incarnation in another museum. I'll give you a little while to work out if you can uh, figure out which museum that was. Hello, you both. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Very well. Good, good. Well, look, let's deal with the the title first of all. Obviously, uh, not Faith, Hope and Charity, but Fate, Hope and Charity. What's the name of the exhibition all about? Well, it took us quite a long time to come up with a name, as it often happens with exhibition titles. Um, 
The fate aspect of the title is supposed to relate to the mother's circumstances. These are the mothers that left the tokens. Um, it was their fate to have to abandon their child because for whatever reason they couldn't look after them. Um, the hope is the hope that they would come back to claim the child and that's the reason that they left the tokens which form the focus of this exhibition and we'll talk a bit more about that I'm sure later. And then the charity is the institution itself, the Foundling Hospital, which looked after the children. We should say just in a word or two what the Foundling Museum does. Of course regular listeners will have visited with us on previous occasions. Uh, what is the Foundling Museum? Jeanette? Well, it, it's really a museum that tells a story that started, um, the Foundling Hospital started in the 18th century as a charity to take in children that Thomas Coram felt were being abandoned. He literally found them um, lying in the streets and he felt something needed to be done. So um, the museum was really set up only in 2004 um, to tell the story of um, his um, the, the, the history of the, the times. Um, it also talks about Hogarth, who was a big supporter and a governor, and um, uh, George Handel, um, who also was a, a big supporter of the hospital, and he later became a governor. And there's a room at the top that tells you about George Handel and um, um, his um, connection with the Messiah that uh, he, he gave to the museum. It's kind of a super group of philanthropists, yes. really. <laughs> Yes, yes. I still can't quite believe that the museum's only been around for, what, less than ten years? I mean, the collection, it's actually... was London's first ever public art exhibition so in a way London's public have been visiting the Foundling Museum since the middle of the 18th century um, but sorry the Foundling Hospital I should say since the middle of the 18th century um, but as a museum and um, it was only set up um, nearly 10 years ago um, in order to provide a better visitor experience. So okay let's uh, get into the exhibition then my understanding is that the tokens that you were referring to were a, a way of sort of reconnecting potentially hopefully maybe with abandoned children or kind of deposited children. Within that framework, if I've got it about right, there are many awful stories and and, um, I'm hoping some positive ones as well, otherwise I'm going to leave here feeling completely depressed. What's been the process? How have you gone about um, researching for this exhibition, Jeanette? Well, I I came really out of my own interest, so I came really just to look at the tokens, just to see what they were. Um, I'm actually an embroiderer and came to look at them from a purely aesthetic Um, uh, point of view and um, I started um, literally coming to the museum visiting the museum, seeing what was here and then going to the archives and in the archives there's 200 books which are all the admission records for all the children and when I first um, arrived there I literally ordered up some books opened them up and there were these items that had been left 250 years ago Um, and from that moment on I was completely hooked And uh, eventually I noticed um, a lot of the fabrics that were in the archives because there's actually objects in the um, records that are in the London Metropolitan Archives appeared to be pieces of the children's clothing. And I contacted the museum to find out a little bit more. And they put me in touch with uh, Jill Clark, who'd been doing some research before. And between us, um, we decided that we wanted to, you know, look into the story of the, of the tokens, what they were, why they were here, um, to find out what sort of things were left. Because really no one knew anything apart from the fact that they were here and they'd been left with the children. Um, so we decided, I think it was Jill's probably her idea, to go through all 200 of these billet books, which is about 18,000 children, and just look at what sort of things were left and, and just find out more. 
So I, I can't quite imagine how that must feel to look through all these names and having a pretty reasonable idea of what might have uh, been the, the cases going on there. I, I'm sort of imagining looking at one of those walls of remembrance from a war or something like that. But how, how did it feel to see all these kids' names? Well, I think for me, it seems to me that it's it's a, it's they weren't left knowing that someone was going to pick them up. You know, the, the mothers left them. And for me, it was the thought that I was keeping their memory alive. These are ordinary women um, in, in extraordinary circumstances. And for me, it was the idea that their stories could be told. So I was quite excited to um, really find the stories, find out about these women, um, because the history books are full of great men and occasionally great women, um, and now we're seeing more ordinary people, but these are really the, you know, some of them are really the lowest of the low. Um, and uh, to think that, you know, th- there's little snippets of their lives. Sometimes they give quite detailed information um, about why they left the children, um, or they're just ordinary things that you know they've handled. And, and you may be, the, you know, one of very few people 250 years later um, that um, c- can touch a note that they'd written. And to me, it was almost like time travel. <laughs> it's, it's kind of easy, really, isn't it, to write history or to, to get a feel for what happened using rich white men, because everything's documented and uh, left behind and photographs taken. Um, Stephanie, you, you're obviously newer uh, than some other members of staff to the foundling, uh, the foundling experience. How have you been finding the, the process of acclimatising to, to this? Um, well, I think the, found, the, the Foundling Hospital tokens really pull you in. Um, they're one of the things that the visitors note, whether we've got the exhibition on or not. We always have some tokens on display. And they're tiny, tiny little things, yet they seem to have the biggest impact. And I think they've had that reaction with me as well. There are so many stories, um, not just the stories of the mothers, although I think that's, as Jeanette said, it's one of the most important things that comes out of this exhibition. Um, the mothers are almost present but absent within the Foundling Hospital story because you have the children and the evidence of them, you have the governors which were almost exclusively male but then you you don't have the the women and their story but the tokens help to bring those out Um, but then you also have the stories of the children and what happened to them Um, and you also have an overriding story about what was going on in Georgian society at the time. The tokens give us little glimpses into everyday Georgian life. Um, These little sort of scraps of evidence, if you like, of what the everyday citizen was up to. Uh, just occurred to me from what you were saying there that of course nursing hadn't been formulated but this wasn't post Nightingale Um, so this is before nursing existed in the way that we know it now the governors were men who who was looking after the the, the kids here Was was that a body of women doing that? Um, the, the hospital's lifetime spanned over 200 years, so obviously things, things change throughout time. Um, there was typically a, a matron um, who'd look after um, the children. Um, later there became um, educational professionals, so, so teachers, professors were, were employed, um, and then there were various other um, um, positions such as the secretary um, who was overall in charge of, of the welfare of the children and the running of the hospital. When I think of Nightingale I always think of her as uh, 
telling everyone to pull their socks up and uh, pull it together a little bit more. Um, was that going on here? Was it a, a precision operation like that? Because what you hear about nursing prior to Nightingale was that the nurses had fags hanging out their mouth and, uh, you know, half drunk and all that kind of thing. Um, well, I think the first thing to say is that when the children were admitted um, to the hospital, the first thing that happened to them were they were sent out to nurse. So those nurses were not based at the hospital and they nursed them in their homes. And you had um, governors or other um, respectable citizens who would be overseers of the nurses in their area, in their geographical area. Um, when they came back to the hospital, then life was far more institutionalised. Um, so although, as you say, you know, it's, it's quite a long time before Florence Nightingale and nursing in that sense came up, this wasn't a hospital in the sense of it was looking after sick children, although obviously at times some or many of them were sick. It was, um, it was a place where they were brought up and and educated into the lives that was thought appropriate for them. Right, that's it. Yeah, OK, so, so we've got to think about that word differently. Yeah, but, yeah. Yeah. Let's go in and have a look at some of the, the, the tokens that might take us into the, the details of yeah. the stories yeah. of the foundlings. Londonist Out Loud is available free as a stream at londonist.com or a weekly download via iTunes. Hit us up on Facebook at Londonist Out Loud, tweet at Londonist Sound, and check out images of our guests via the Londonist Out Loud stream on Instagram. Um, this is really the um, introduction, and it tells you a little bit about the system. Um, every child that came in was given a number, as well as nearly always they were given a new name. And part of the reason was to cut the link between the children and the mother. Um, because they had to give them up and, and the, mo- um, the mother really gave up her responsibility for the children. Um, but it was also thought it would give them um, a new start in life. Um, the number they actually had um, written in the records, but they also had it written on a tag that was put round their neck, so um, it was quite securely put on on the children. And for every child, um, you can see there's a, a book here with pages Um, And for every page, that's the admission record of a child. Um, Originally, these were folded up. They were filled out and then folded up, and the actual token was put inside. Um, They were sealed. They had the number and the date of admission on the front. Um, And uh, and you can see there's there's fold marks, I think, on the... um, on the pages. 1759, this one? Yes, well, they started in 1741, and uh, really the token system lasted till about 1800. We've got a few that go into the early 1800s, um, but the majority of children came in between 1756 and 1760, because at that time they had this open-door policy. Uh, the government had given the hospital some money, and they had to bring had to take in any child under a certain age. So it might have been two months at the beginning. Um, eventually, it went up to about a year, um, and um, that was when the vast majority of the children came in. Between 1741, when they opened, and 1756, there was under 5,000 admissions. The four years we had this open reception, there was about 15,000. And that's where the vast majority of the um, the children came in. Now, is that because an institution of this sort didn't really exist prior to that and it was just hoovering up its first intake? Or was there a particularly pronounced problem at that point? Or what, what was the situation? 
Well, there was there was a big problem because Thomas Coram himself used to say that he used to find children literally laying in the streets, um, and uh, and that's what he wanted to stop. It took him several years because the very wealthy people um, felt that if they helped these people with their abandoned children, they they just have more. Um, so it took him a long time to get um, some some help. He needed um, someone with money and someone with influence. Um, and then they opened really on private subscription and, and donations, so they, they couldn't take in a lot of children. Um, and they would eventually they had to have a lottery system where you put a hand in a, in a bag and if you took a black ball out, you went home. If you took a white ball out, you would go through um, if your child was healthy because um, they didn't want children with measles or smallpox. Um, if your child seemed to be healthy, then they would come in. Um, and there would be a red ball, um, which would uh, be for children. If the white ball children failed their medical, so to speak, um, the red children, red ball children would get a second chance. But 1756, the government realised, I think probably they, they realised that because of all the wars and battles that were going on, they needed a bit of um, cannon fodder <laughs> almost um, and servants. And uh, they realised that it could be a benefit to the country um, to uh, to have these children in, but after four years they decided it was just too expensive, um, and they went back to um, subscriptions and um, to get the money and, and donations, and, and people had to apply. So much to get your head around there. I mean, I can't quite imagine the uh, the, the pressure around the situation where you're reaching in to, to select one of the balls, hoping that you mm. that it's going to be the right one. And uh, we've got. Uh, I'm sure this must appeal to you as a token, although the tokens uh, seem to take all sorts of different shapes and sizes, different materials. And this one is a fabric token. I'm, I'm imagining that would uh, that would catch your eye with your professional. Um, with your professional background well it was it was the fabric tokens that first interested me and then of course I started hearing about all the others and learning about the others but often these fabrics are actually cut from the children's clothing so you think that that baby when that came in that piece of fabric was cut off and and when we had a previous exhibition here um, it was all about the fabrics and some are embroidered there's pieces of lace there's all sorts of different textiles ribbons um, and um, they they do form quite a large um, number of the tokens. Well, we'll be looking at some more tokens in just a moment. I'm sure the thing that's preying on my mind is the fact that uh, that token is here. And if I've understood the system correctly, Stephanie, that means that the child hasn't been collected again, doesn't it? That's correct, yes. The key thing about these tokens, even though many of them seem to have quite personal messages or- on them that often seem to be directed towards the child that was left. They were never meant for the child, they were meant as identifiers. So yes, the whole idea was that they were left so that if the parents ever came to collect them, the idea was that they should remember the date (laughs) that they left the child. It didn't always work that way. Um, So that when they claimed them, they could also say what token it was. So that would sort of add um, add a a weight to their claim. Um, But unfortunately, very few um, claims were made. Can we just uh, just so that my heart is, is is warmed again for a moment? Do you have accounts of people coming to pick their child up after a certain amount of time? Is that a thing that that was going on? We do, yes, we do have evidence of people coming to claim their tokens. And it's those claim documents that actually have given um, our researchers a lot more evidence to go on to, 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 to match some of the, the tokens up and to provide some of the, the answers to some of the questions that were lingering. Um, there were about 500 claims made up to the end of the 18th century. So that's about 3%, I think, of the total number. Um, there's a couple of things to mention around that. First of all, um, it wasn't exclusively 
impoverished women that left their children here but mainly I think poverty was was the driving cause um, and they had to prove that they could look after the child going forward and up to 1764 they also had to pay for their care to date so that was an added financial burden that might have stopped people collecting their, their children. That's a little bit crazy as a policy isn't it? Well, if they've got no money to expect them to, to cough up uh, fees in arrears, I mean, how, how would they be able to do that? Well, possibly that's the reason they changed it by 1764. Um, but, you know, even despite that change, there was still a limited number of claims that, that were made, unfortunately. Would you like to, should we look at some examples? So oh, that's, can... that's a very good... If only there were some close to hand. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're moving through into the main area of the exhibition here. It is a feast of uh, turquoise and display case. At the far end of the room, we've got some blown-up examples of tokens on the wall here. Uh, Some of them looking like decorated padlocks, one or two uh, more like coins or cogs. And in the display case here, uh, oh, the the real articles. What what was the the landscape then? Was it, uh, for example, a family with a a couple more children than they could manage, or was it uh, somebody who shouldn't have been having children according to societal norms, or people, just one child couldn't afford it, another child couldn't afford it? How, How was it? working? Um, Well, in answer to your question as to why did people um, leave their children here, there are a myriad of of different answers to that, but this is is one example. Um, This small token here um, was actually a James II coin that has been smoothed down, and the parents have um, arranged for it to be engraved in quite a lot of detail, and this is quite a sophisticated engraving. It's got a cherub, it's got the little girl's name, Elizabeth Harris, and her date of birth on it. Um, This was left with a child in 1756 and um, our researchers have managed to trace um, what we believe is the father of the child who was um, arrested for stealing a bushel of coal um, and transported for seven years. Um, So clearly that would have left his family in financial um, difficulties. Which presumably they were already experiencing if he was needing to steal coal. Absolutely, Um, and this would have probably made life impossible for, for the mother, and that's why the, the child got left here. Um, so we can't confirm that that's the link, but we have to presume that that was probably the case. I want to know how the researchers managed to find this out. <laughs> was this one of yours, Jim? Uh, well, actually, it was probably one of Jill's, I think. Um, but um, it, we, we sort of go on a similar process. If we find a child and it's got a name to it, um, then obviously, and a, and a date of its birth, then we, we often go through the normal records that a family historian would do. Um, and with a name like Harris, I mean, that must be a trial. Well, but we've got a date, and a lot of these um, uh, tokens were left with notes. So sometimes they actually give a bit of information, and they'll say where they came from. It wasn't, it wasn't compulsory. Um, they could have just left... Uh, you know, no note at all, and, and often they don't, or they'll just leave a simple, um, just a simple name like John. Um, but um, this must have been one of the ones that had a bit more detail. Um, and uh, I'm not even sure if we didn't even have a birth certificate with this one. Sometimes we've had uh, certificates, and of course um, there was probably something to tell us that the the husband had um, disappeared. And online records such as the Old Bailey we can actually find out the whole court case and and records of of someone like uh, Mr Harris. It's really luck. Sometimes you get a lot of information. Um, If you get an unusual name, then obviously it's much easier to to find the children, but some of them we'll never find because they're they're just too... There's there's not enough information and um, 
uh, it, it's just too difficult to find in the 18th century. The records weren't as good as, as 100 years later. The tokens as a whole um, comprise a whole um, whole range of different materials. Most of them are fabric tokens or paper tokens. Um, and during the 19th century, they were um, all these tokens, these little packages were, were opened up, um, and the fabric and paper tokens were all um, pinned to their billets. So the tokens and the the billets, the information on the admission of the child, was kept together. But the if you like, 3D objects um, were taken out. Um, the then Secretary John Brownlow thought that these were interesting you know, cu- curiosities. This was sort of nearly 100 years after, after the tokens had been collected. And he decided to take them out and put them on display for visitors. In some ways it was a wise move because visitors have been fascinated by them ever since. But it was also a terrible move for record keeping because it meant that the billet the admission information and the token were separated so a lot of what Jill and Jeanette's research has been dedicated to in the last years is is to match up those 3D tokens the special section of the tokens with the billets to see if they can they can work out the links and um, they've come up with some amazing um, successes but I think there are some that we'll never know which child they belong to well with that story you've just justified a vast swathe of uh, jobs in museums haven't you (laughs) (laughs) that's why you have to do things in a particular way I was curious um, if you've identified well let's take a guess and imagine that uh, he gets shipped off to Australia this fellow and you've kind of you think you've worked out who she is and you think you might be able to work I mean how far do you go with it are you sort of uh, following it through to the present day and saying hey we've we've got something here that might be of interest to you do you go that far is there a temptation to well we we've some children um, once we've got the the child's record once we've got their number then we can look at what happened to the child from the time they were admitted so we can look to see um, if they survived because a lot of the children did die in, in infancy so some of the children um, where there isn't an outcome at the end of our um, note it usually means that they died as, a, as an infant um, and that was just common in the 18th century um, but if they survive um, occasionally we, we have actually found um, stories that link them to the present day but it's, it's very unusual because again if it's a name like Harris as a surname um, it's, it's very difficult to, to join them up with someone um, of the modern day but um, we, we have had a couple of successes um, in fact I found one the other day um, that uh, I haven't even told the museum yet so <laughs> um, and then I can tell the uh, the descendants perhaps so we, we might have another exhibition out of that oh, that's very exciting <laughs> so somebody might be getting a call set <laughs> yes wow yes. what about some of these other stories going on here what uh, what else have we got this cabinet really is all about personal things so these are all things that probably the parent um well they're all these ones here uh, are ones where they've actually uh, made them um very different so they've got initials on them um the, the pictures above actually show you what the small items are because it's easier to see them so like elizabeth harris it's got her name and the date she was born that that is very fancy isn't it yes you you could yes. sort of imagine that that must cost something to get done yeah, absolutely. It, it costs something to get done, but it also shows that this wasn't an instant decision. The parents had clearly thought about the fact that they were going to leave their child here, and therefore they prepared this token. Um, some of them have clearly been hand-done. Um, some of the etchings or, or the engravings are quite crude, and some of the sewing is also quite crude or clearly clearly hand-done, but, um, but done in advance, so parents clearly planned to, to leave their, their child here. Mm. Um, the, the coin that you, you sort of referred to as a, as a cog 
is actually it is actually a coin that's actually been they've, someone's taken notches all around the outside just to make it individual. Um, and there's a, another coin here with holes in. And again, it's a very simple way of making it different um, from from something else. I think that coin we actually tracked its record down because the records show a coin of a certain date with four holes in and there's only one in the collection and that's one of the ways that we that we were able to find um which child that one belonged to it, it always makes me think when i'm in um when i'm in cathedrals and you know you've got those uh, commemorative uh, slabs with an engraving about the people there and and generations of people walking over it have almost worn it away and there's the memory of that person hanging on to just maybe for one more generation before it slips into obscurity and I, I'm reminded of that sort of um, it's by those kind of slender threads that, that uh, connections can be retrieved you know whether was it five holes rather than two you know that made all the difference in whether the, the genealogy of this person can be retraced yes yes and some of the some of the other objects in the in the next cabinet we think are things that probably people had about their person so there's a thimble um, there's um, there's a spyglass um, and there's a token for um, uh, the King's Experimental Philosophy Lecture it was like a ticket um, to go to um, Erasmus King was uh, like a scientist what you'd call a scientist today and he would have these um, sort of spectaculars on um, presumably the mother, or it could have been the father, would have gone to one of his lectures, but we do know that Erasmus King did lectures for women um, and he used to advertise them in his wife's uh, lace shop in, uh, in London. And um, he would have these um, uh, sort of theatrical performances. It's, it's, it's a reminder of you know the times we were in. But the mother may have had that... Um, token in her pocket before she she even knew she was going to give the child away. So you sort of have that connection with you know something that she did, um, and then she felt that was important enough to to hand over an individual enough. I think um, something that the tokens give us is this, as I said before, this insight into everyday Georgian life. So the, an example of going to Erasmus King's lecture is one of those things. This is what a citizen of, of London might have done in the 18th century. And some of the other um, tokens in this case um, also sort of amplify that idea. So we've got here a season pass to Vauxhall Gardens, and we had a, a recent exhibition all about Vauxhall Gardens. It was one of the, the greatest public entertainments of the time. It was a very good exhibition, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Um, it was, the, well, the gardens were incredibly popular. But to get this season pass, they, they did a des- different design every year. That would have cost a lot of money and it's got the um, um the owner's name engraved on the back so this doesn't didn't necessarily belong to him you know it's, it's one of my um sort of constant queries about about these objects is you know that might have belonged to the chap whose name is engraved on the back but after the year had finished it wasn't worth anything as a season pass so did he pass it on to somebody did he pass it on to to a servant or or you know we can't be absolutely sure that 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 pass was owned by by the person and and with some of the coins that we have for example they are you know from from a whole variety of different reigns in england some of them um you know hundreds of years old and were they passed down through generations you know it, it's interesting to think of the life of this object before it came to to, to the family um hospital mm-hmm. what about the uh, there's a fish here at the end what's this all about um we did have up on our facebook um in the early weeks of the um uh, exhibition um a query saying what is this you know so people can guess what it is it's made of bone and it's actually a gambling token um card playing was incredibly popular through all different um, levels of georgian society um and um 
gambling obviously often went along alongside that so this was a simple simple gambling token and would have easily fit in your pocket and, and it's the only one in the collection so it was you know a, a, a nice thing to leave as an identifier with with the child I wonder whether that played any part in the child being uh, unaffordable at the time or something like that, you know, maybe. <laughs> possibly, possibly. Uh, let's, look, uh, let's look further afield. Londonist Out Loud is sponsored by Audible. To claim your free audiobook from a range of 60,000 titles, try the Audible service on a 30-day free trial. Audiobooks can be saved as MP3s and played on your compatible phone, tablet or desktop or burned to CD and they're yours to keep. For your free audiobook, go to www.audible.co.uk forward slash Londonist and click through. Here on the wall we have two pictures. This is rather a peculiar way of displaying a picture though there's a big turquoise square in the middle of each picture one seems to be framing one of three uh, cherubic children who are standing in a, a pasture or a meadow um and the other one well this this looks more like uh, some uh, regal situation going on here and there's a, a turquoise square around uh, his majesty is that cha- 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 i'm gonna say james the second how close charles the second lots of wig going on um uh, what's happening well, this is um, Charles II um, was known for uh, a ceremony called touching, and it was to do with this touch piece that we've got, um, which has got a, a image of um, St Michael, um, and uh, if if someone had uh, a condition called scofula. Um, and it was sometimes called the king's evil, the king would perform this ceremony of touching them and then giving them this touch piece. What did scrofula do to you? It's the tubercular infection of the lymph glands, is how we describe it today. Um, although they did use scrofula to, to sort of ex- explain a whole variety of different diseases of the skin. It sort of caused pustules to develop all over the skin. Um, one could grow out of it. Um, it often affected people in childhood, but could affect them later on. Um, and a very famous sufferer of scrofula was Samuel Johnson. Um, and he wore a touch piece like this one, this, this token, around his neck for all, for, for all of his life because it wasn't thought that it would work unless you kept wearing the touch piece. Um, so it's one of the examples in this case that we've got of, um, of superstitions that were around during the 18th century. You seem to know a lot about uh, Dr Johnson. Yeah, it's funny that. <laughs> I spent five and a half years um, living next door to his house as the curator there. So well, did you reject him in the end? Did you just think, enough words already? <laughs> time for a change of book. <laughs> no, you can never reject Samuel Johnson, um, but time for a change of scene. Yes, quite so. And uh, what I'm quite interested in here is the concept of the, the king uh, performing this service. You can't really imagine a contemporary monarch doing this, can you? Um, no, and in fact, it went out with the Hanoverian kings. The G- George I refused, refused to do it. So Queen Anne, who touched Samuel Johnson, was the last monarch to undertake that ceremony um so this token um it would have been given to somebody it wouldn't have been given to the child themselves it must have been given to a parent or a grandparent of the child so it's clearly something that again it maybe had been passed down through generations or been kept within the family and it's gold so it, it it's um I think it's it's quite a powerful symbol that, that a probably very impoverished family leaves a gold um, token. They're, they're possibly giving their last valuable thing to leave with, with the child. We, we don't know. We have to speculate. Well, yes, and, and in terms of, uh, the, sort of the, the spiritual and physical well-being of the child as well as uh, the, the yeah. 
financial value. Why just by the by? Why was it called the King's uh, King, King's, King's evil. evil? Why was it called that? I think because of this ceremony, because the, it was it was one of the things that proved that you were divine as a ah. king. That you know there was God, and then there was King, and uh, and the King could perform this you know miraculous ceremony. Well, I'm, I'm astonished that he was performing it then, given uh, what happened as because of the divine right uh, previously. Well, well, that was part of the reason that he did it was to reassert the divine right of kings. I mean, I think he touched thousands of people in his first few days of, 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 of <laughs> you know, of, of, of gaining the, the monarchy. So. Yeah. <laughs> oh, there we go. Um, what else do we have in the superstitions department? Um, well, this this one's particularly interesting because this is actually a, a call, and a call is a, a membrane. Some children are born, or not not so much nowadays. Oh, I've just seen what we're looking at. <laughs> I and, thought we were looking at this leather-bound uh, sort of Harry Potter-style spell book going on here, but no, it's that it's like no. a, a snakeskin. Well, yes, yes, it does. Uh, so it's actually a part of the child, really, because it, it was this membrane. But it was thought very lucky if you were born with this with this uh, membrane over your head and uh, such was the um, the value of them even in financial terms that people would actually sell them and there were adverts going from 17th century 18th century 19th century I believe it finished in the first world war that people would actually buy these and sell them um, and you can look in the times online and, and actually find adverts um, it was particularly supposed to save you from drowning how you inflate it and float on it. No, I think it was just by by having it. Um, there are lockets. I've uh, seen pictures of lockets, and people have kept them kept them inside. So again, it was you know, although it doesn't look as exciting as the uh, as the gold coin, um, it was valuable as well as um, you know thought to to provide the child with some sort of protection. So this wouldn't necessarily be the membrane from the child who was. Handed in. I would imagine it probably was, really? yes, because I think this child, I think it says it's only about a month old when it came in. Um, it, it's more than likely that they would keep it with the child, perhaps hoping that they would have good fortune. <laughs> Sadly, it's one of the children that, that didn't live very much after he was admitted. Um, but he came from St Giles uh, because of, of the note here. We know that he comes from St Giles. So it was a very, very poor area. Mm. So... Uh, you know, he would have had a very, very poor diet. His mother would have had a very poor diet when she was carrying him. So perhaps it's not surprising um, that he wouldn't have uh, survived very long. Over next to it, we've, I'm very hesitant now. I've discovered that the membranes are in the collection, but there's a there's a little uh, a little black thing. It looks like it might be a model hand or something at a push. It's got a hole through it. I can't quite discern what that is. Well, it, it's, this is another amulet. Um, it's a, quite an ancient amulet. Um, I have seen people write about this and say that it looks like a doll's hand. Um, and then I was looking through a book one day and realised that it's what they call a mano feature. I'm not sure my pronunciation. Uh, but in Italy, that's a very um, powerful um, amulet that people would, would wear. Um, you can get them in coal and bone and all sorts of things. And the little hole would be to wear round your neck. So again, it was it was a protective um, item to to protect you. I think from the evil eye, I would imagine that sort of mm. um, thing. So, you know, we're, we're meant to be the 18th century in the in the age of enlightenment with rational thought. Um, but obviously, for the ordinary person on the street, they uh, hedged their bets and uh, had a few amulets uh, kept about them as well. Yeah, it's very interesting. You you get a sort of a sense of. Um I don't know, for me, there's a sort of a desperation going on there. You know, what, what would you bequeath if you could only do it by something yes. uh, the size of a Ludo piece? We've got one final item here, a coral necklace. 
coral was fashionable um, in jewellery, and that's why we've got the image above it showing a young girl wearing a coral necklace. Ah, right. And we've got several different items of coral jewellery within the tokens collection, this being one of them. Um, but it was also thought to be... Um, lucky again in particular coral was supposed to help ward off a whole variety of different diseases that raised ranged from stomach ache all the way through to smallpox so it's possible that um that the parent wanted them not only to have a you know a, a popular fashionable piece of jewelry but also to have um this um this protection against these diseases as well as they went forward into their life at the hospital now it occurs to me that I've been looking at this all the wrong way um, as I've sort of processed the exhibits here. I started out thinking that uh, we're really focusing on the moment of drama and, and separation and, and that, but really the, the, the people who ended up here, they, they were the lucky ones, weren't they? Really, because they've successfully uh, passed through whatever ballot or whatever system got them into the place at the, at the time. And clearly uh, anybody who tried to get in the child here did so for a reason so the children who had the uh, the good fortune to end up here and be looked after properly they they were the lucky ones amongst the the, the children of their generation yeah yes they they were and um um the alternative for some of the children that didn't get in was the workhouse and the workhouse i think 99.9 percent of the children there died um i think a lot of the mothers literally as high a proportion as that yeah um and i think a lot of the the, the tokens that we've seen that you know the very valuable things or or reasonably valuable things is because the mothers um as we know they thought about it and they they were perhaps giving them up not because they were abandoning them but because they knew they would have um you know they would the children would be clothed they would be educated they had a better chance in life so they weren't really I'd, I feel abandonment is, is perhaps the wrong term, that they were actually, you know, giving them a better life. Mm. And I think that's what some of these objects, you know, that's why they can afford to give us something precious, because they want to really show that the children are precious. Could, maybe we could say something about those who, who came through this system, because, of course, not all of the children um, uh, perished, as, uh, as our friend here with the membrane did so very, very young. And many of them um, grew up and lived, uh, well, in, in, particularly in the case of John Brownlow, very important lives, very relevant lives to the, um, the hospital. But what do we know of other uh, children who, who grew up? I think one of the first things to say is that from the very beginning, the, it, the idea was that the children would be turned into useful citizens. And... They were taught, particularly in those early years, to know their know their status in life. So they weren't brought up to become um, Lord Mayors of London and uh, you know high flyers. They were brought up to enter the military and to become domestic servants in the case of the girls, or to be apprenticed. Um, should we look at one of the, the boys that became apprenticed? Um, I might get Jeanette to talk about this story because it's one of the most moving stories that we have. But it does have one. As I say it does have one good good ending um, in terms of what happened to the child. So. Um, <coughs> um, I'm, I'm braced <laughs> well this, this is the story of Margaret Larney um, and we should really say Margaret Larney and Alice Davis because although Alice Davis didn't really have a connection with the, the foundling um, she, she was convicted at the same time as Margaret Larney um, both of them were convicted of a crime that was called coining and it, it meant that you had a, a gold coin or sometimes a silver coin you would perhaps um, either forge it or take a little bit off the edge and then when you had enough of, uh, of the filings um, you would then melt them down and sell the gold and this is what Margaret and Alice were both convicted of. Um, when Margaret Larney came to the hospital and, uh, and was convicted, she put her youngest son at the time um, into the hospital, and he was John Larney. 
And um, then, because she was pregnant, she couldn't be um, executed, as was the punishment... (laughs) As with this punishment that she, you know, that, that was uh, set for her, Alice Davis was was executed fairly soon after the trial. But Margaret Larney did what they called pleaded the belly, and uh, they found that because she was pregnant, they, she'd got signs of pregnancy. Um, instead, she had to stay in Newgate. So she wrote this uh, note when she was at the end of her time and when she'd had her second baby um, to ask if her two boys um, could know each other. Um, it's something that probably didn't happen because, um, as, as we said at the beginning, the, the hospital really wanted a, a complete separation from the mother and, and the child. And although these children weren't ever going to see their mother because she was going to be executed, they wouldn't have made any other family connection. Uh, so they didn't cancel the, 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 the death penalty for her. It was just uh, delayed until such time as her children had arrived. Yes, yes. And in fact, um, you can look online and you can find her ordinary, which is the, is the accounts that she gave um, when she was uh, just... A, it's, it's supposed to be their last words, but it's, it's a sort of account of her life. And she actually says that she hoped she would be transported um, I have to say that looking through the records, there are very little. It's very little evidence that she seemed to do it. It seems to be circumstantial. There were some files at the house. There's a possibility that somebody else left them there. Um, so whether um, someone else thought that she'd done something. Um, else in the past and, and they thought well this is a way of, of getting rid of her she was taken in by the um, Dr Fielding's uh, or uh, Justice Fielding's um, Bow Street Runners and they were known for their detective work so it could be that they found her guilty of other crimes that we haven't actually found out yet um, and that's why she was executed but they at the time it was high treason because the king's head or the queen's head was on the coin it was high treason, and for a woman that meant execution by burning, which I was quite surprised to find um, in 1750. It was 1758 that she was executed. Let's hear the contents of that letter. Dear Sir, I am the unfortunate woman that lies under sentence of death in Newgate. I had a child just in here before, when I was sent here. His name is James Larney. She actually gets that wrong. It was John Larney. And this, his name is John Larney. And he was born the King's Coronation Day, 1758. And dear sirs, I beg for the tender mercy of God to let them know one and other. For dear sir, here you are a very good gentleman and God helping and be with you and they forever. So I am your humble servant, Margaret Larney. Margaret was was executed. Um, we since found out that she had she actually had five children when she was um, uh, arrested and taken into the Old Bailey, and uh, um, two of them ended up in the workhouse. Um, there was a little boy who was also called James. We we we've a feeling that she got a bit confused with the names. There's a possibility she's written George on there, and then it's been crossed out. So we think obviously she was a woman under stress. But uh, her older children, James, who was five, and Elizabeth, who was three, went into the workhouse, and actually they didn't survive as long as their mother did um, in jail. Um, the little boy that was born in Newgate, and she, she actually talks about the horror of, of having the baby in Newgate, um, he didn't survive very long. He was about a month or two. He was about three months when he came in, so she must have nursed him for three months in Newgate. 
Um, but he, he survived only about a month after. But the good news is, is the older boy, the first boy that came in, um, he was renamed as George Millett, and he survived to apprenticeship, and he ended up in Shropshire as a peruke maker's assistant. He would have so as a what now? A peruke maker assistant. What is a peruke maker? Uh, he basically makes wigs. Uh, I think they collected hair. Um, and uh, they would weave them into wigs. And, of course, in the 18th century, wigs were very popular. Um, unfortunately, we've never been able to find out any more about George Millet. Um, he himself had, um, in, in the records, it actually says that he had the evil um, at some point, and that could have been the king's evil, um, but they also used it for syphilis, as a term for syphilis. So whether something like that, and he perhaps didn't live very long life, um, we'd love to find out, um, you know, if, if we could find out about George Millet in later life. But um, so far, we haven't. But we, we keep searching. Oh, yes. I wanted to ask you a very naive question, perhaps. I don't know if this is within the remit of what you naturally come across, but if she was in Newgate, how did she keep managing to have more children? How is this going on? Well, she was pregnant before she went in. You said, I thought you said like five children, at least two children. Oh, I mean. no, she had, she had five children when she was at her trial. So in her trial, she mentions five children. And oh, I see. what I think I forgot to say was her husband, Terence, um, he actually abandoned her. So he abandoned the two children that ended up in the workhouse. And we think he probably took the older children because they would have been old enough to work. Uh, but it was only the one child that she had when she was in, in Newgate. Although there are stories of women who, to try and get rid of their sentence, uh, to be transported, often did um, sell their favours, shall we say, um, in order to get pregnant and then they wouldn't be executed. So it, it was something that went on. And, you know, perhaps understandable. Now, um, there's a lot of these spell books going on. <laughs> We're at a cabinet with uh, two just here. I'm just checking for membrane. No, no membrane. Please continue, Stephanie. You're, you're safe in this area. Just ribbons here. And um, we mentioned that a lot of the tokens were, were fabric. And um, for some of the tokens, just an object was left. But then in other cases, they'd actually cut something in half. So if they cut, cut a piece of ribbon in half, the, the parents would leave one bit with the child as the token and they keep the other bit themselves so if they came back to claim the child then they could show the matching piece of ribbon and one of the examples that we've got here has got two identical pieces of ribbon this rather um, fancy blue and white um, ribbon and you can see they they match exactly but the one I wanted to talk to you about is this story here Um, and it all centers around a little girl called Charlotte and when she came in um I don't think it was the case that the mother was incredibly impoverished, but I think she just couldn't cope with any more children. Her husband was away serving, he was a lieutenant, um, and this was her 12th child. So I think she, she just couldn't, couldn't cope, um, whether that's financially or time-wise, I'm not sure. Um, it's also worth mentioning that um, th- th- there was very poor provision for military wives and widows during the 18th century. So a lot of the children that were left here were left here as a result of the many wars that that the country was fighting at the time because the the husbands or or the lovers or the fathers or whoever they might be were abroad or were killed in action um, it often left the mothers in a rather destitute position in this case um, 
Mrs. Morris has left her daughter Charlotte because her husband is away serving and she says she'll come back to collect her in a couple of years' time. And she doesn't come in a couple of years' time, she actually comes in seven years' time. And unfortunately, by that time, the child is dead. But it is interesting to read her note um, because it's actually written and she lives very close to where the, the hospital is. She lives in Bloomsbury in Soapers Row. And her husband is now um, called Captain Morris. So clearly he's had a promotion, life has got better for them and they're able to reclaim the child. Um, I'm sorry it's not a um, a happy claim that we've got here, um, but but just the thought of of that woman, that that mother, waiting those seven years and then coming back to find her her child is dead, it's a rather heartbreaking one, I'm afraid. Well, I think it tells us that the uh, captain should have worked out and got the promotion soon. (laughs) Quite possibly, yeah. But it also shows that the system worked. Um, You know, if the the parents came back with the right information, the date of the child, and they came back with their their token as a matching yellow ribbon, then you know, they could successfully get their child. And it stopped, and um, the token system stopped people coming who m- might have had slightly suspicious motives for claiming a child, uh, some sort of guardian, in inverted commas, or somebody who who, who might not Collected have been the children. true... Yeah, absolutely, yeah. might not have been the, the, the true parent. They started introducing receipts um, in, in the, the, the sort of the third half of the 18th century. Um, and gradually these these became a necessary part of, of, of the process. So every parent who left a child here was given a receipt. So that's the reason that the tokens eventually um, disappeared as a system, because the receipt system changed them. So the parent could keep the receipt, so as long as they produced that receipt, which was signed by the secretary, um, then they could prove that they were the, the owner of the child. It would have the date that the child was admitted and, and their sex, etc. on there as well. I'm very, very grateful for the standard of health provision that we have in, in this part of the world at this time. I mean, all, all this discussion of the, the proportion of children passing away very early mm. just blows your mind, doesn't it? And we've got one final item to have a look at here. This one's interesting because it, it shows the other complete end of the spectrum um, because we didn't mention there was another way you could get your child in um, and that was if you admitted your child with a donation of £100. Now, £100 was probably the equivalent of something like £7,000 now. Um, And we have a story which was an anecdote by William Hunter, who was a a renowned surgeon. He was an obstetrician. He was um, an anatomist. Um, And he used to tell the story that a famous peer's daughter came to him one day to say that she'd fallen pregnant out of wedlock and asked if he could help her. And he said um, that, yes, he could. He could get um, the child into the foundling hospital. Um, But what he wanted to do was when she was about to give birth, he asked if she could go to a friend's house to to actually have the baby. And she said, no, her father wouldn't let her out of his sight. Um, So he said, well, if you can promise to have the baby in complete silence, I can get the baby admitted to the foundling hospital secretly. And the girl said yes. Now, we don't know, this is one of the girls that we just don't know any details because it was completely anonymous. Um, the story is that she gave birth not to one but two boys. She had twins. Silently. Um, <laughs> she had two boys, yes, silently. Well, I, I don't know if she had it silently or he had a very big house. Um, 
<laughs> and he just couldn't hear her. I, d- I really don't know, because um, she had to donate £100 with each of them. And when I heard this story, I really wanted to find out if it was true. So I went through the records, and there are very few £100 children, as you can imagine, um, but there's only one set of twins. And this one has got a playing card. There's a, the second twin has also got a more or less identical playing card. And you'll actually see... This is the back of the playing card, because they were plain. There are quite a few playing cards, because you could write on them. But you'll see uh, Hunter's signature is on there as well. So we knew that this was, uh, this was the right one. The two boys, she named one George and she named one Joseph... And unusually, the hospital kept those names. They kept George and Joseph. They gave them a surname of Prelo, which is, is rather an unusual name. It seems to come from the Channel Islands. So whether that was something connected to her, um, I really don't know. But both boys survived into childhood. Sadly, Joseph died of a fever when he was a teenager. And again, you know, it's, it's not uncommon. Um, but George lived to be apprenticed to a coffee man. I'm not quite sure if he served coffee... He sold coffee, but he was a coffee man in London. So hopefully he went on to have a, a happy life. Well, that's a, that's a lovely note to, uh, to end on. And uh, am I right in thinking that this is uh, Hunter as in the Hunterian Museum? Is it the same guy? It, it's his brother. Ah. There's a Hunterian or a Hunter Museum in Scotland. Um, John Hunter was his younger brother, but um, it's the same family. William Hunter's collection forms the basis of the Hunterian Museum in Glasgow. There's also the Hunterian Museum, which forms part of the Royal College of Surgeons, and that collection is, is based on um, the uh, collection of his brother, John Hunter. Um, so there's two Hunterian um, museums to mm. visit. Fantastic. Wow. When can people... Because there's, there's much more that we haven't spoken about. There's a, there's a thing over there looking like a, a, a miniature trebuchet, which um, I'm, we're not going to talk about it because I want people to come and have a look and find out what that is. Um, but how long have they got to do that? When does the exhibition run until? Um, the exhibition carries on until the 19th of May, so you've still got about another, another month and a half, nearly two months to go. And which days of the week are you open here? Um, we're open from Tuesday to Sunday, so... Um, come along and visit yes if you haven't been here i mean we're, as i say this is just one exhibition in the basement there's so much more going on upstairs including that i think i'm right in saying the original uh, manuscript of the messiah by handle that you can uh, if you're very good you might be allowed to have a look at yeah, absolutely we've got a wonderful handle collection in the Gerald cook handle um collection up upstairs on the second floor so well worth a visit yes and if you're a fan of hogarth or anything like that come along um final uh, job in the list is uh, what's the website uh, the website address is www.foundlingmuseum.org.uk. Okay, well, Jeanette Wright and Stephanie Chapman, thank you so much. That's it. Thank, thank you, you very much. And that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to Stephanie Chapman and Jeanette Bright. Thanks too to Gemma Colgan and Bernie Barclay. Theme and incidental music was by Jack Hurd and Rory Anderson. And I'm and Quentin Wolf.
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.